break 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 you are now listening to breakthrough news You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here on The Punch-Out for 8-2021, the 8th of April, 2021. Happy to be with you on this Thursday. Plenty for you here on the show, as we always do, including discussing whether or not more affordable housing may be on the way for those who are feeling the pinch there. Certainly, the Biden administration announced something claiming they're going to do that this morning. We're going to be talking about the militant protests that also are continuing to shake the Southeastern Asian country of Myanmar. But before we get to either of those two important stories, we want to start on the infrastructure battle, which is certainly continuing, and where the Republican Party is acting in an unbelievably obstructionist way that almost certainly will end up in this bill, if it passes, being watered down. The battle over infrastructure is heating up in Congress. Now, before we get into where we are exactly right now, I think it's We're setting the tone here. Infrastructure sounds and is presented in something of a dry way, but it is absolutely critical. More or less, a chunk of it depends very heavily or will uh, impact very heavily whether you live or die, say in a fiery bridge collapse, or if you end up just being slowly poisoned to death by the water from your tap. So even though it isn't presented in the most exciting way, when we talk about infrastructure, we really are talking about life and death stuff here. Take bridges, for example, since we already mentioned that. There are 46,000 bridges, roughly, a little bit more than that, that are labeled as structurally deficient. 178 million trips go across those bridges every day. Now ask yourself, would you go across a bridge willingly if you knew it was officially labeled structurally deficient? Exactly. It's the type of situation we're in here as it concerns infrastructure. Very important issue crucial issue. Something needs to be done. Now, we previously stated to you on the punch out that the Biden proposal, in fact, was not to fix all the bridges, just some of them. And that also, you know, water systems face $434 billion in needed spending, but Biden's only proposing $111 million. He's proposing $100 billion on school modernization, but the need is $380 billion. So, okay, not meeting the scale of the problem, but certainly speaking to to the problem itself. So let's take a step back here and really just look at the whole debate and what it says about U.S. democracy. I mean, you'd think in our so-called democratic two-party system, if one party was saying, hey, tens of thousands of bridges could collapse imminently, but we aren't going to fix them all, that naturally the other party would, of course, come in and say, wait, hold on. That sounds dangerous. In fact, we are going to fix all the bridges. Seems logical, right? Well, if you thought that, you would, in fact, be wrong. In fact, the other party, the Republicans, have staked out a position that essentially means that they are for not fixing any of the bridges, 
or at least a very small number of the bridges, and essentially doing nothing to make the water cleaner or to shore up the levees or to keep the dams from crumbling. And this is relevant because even though Democrats have the majority, President Biden has decided he wants to seek a compromise with Republicans, which means what they say has weight, that it ultimately influences where the bill ends up, which is undoubtedly watered down. Even if they were to pass it with all Democrats to make it look more bipartisan, obviously they will genuflect towards what the Republican arguments are as they watered the bill down. So this complete obstructionism by Republicans, very relevant. They're making two main arguments here. And one is that billionaires should not pay for the infrastructure plan. And they're also making an argument that what's in the Biden plan is far too much. But really, their main opposition is on the issue of who should pay for it since the Biden plan is proposing to raise taxes on the wealthiest corporations and uh, to close some tax loopholes for the wealthiest individuals, which has incensed the Republicans. They are very upset that Biden wants to raise the corporate tax rate from 21%. That's where it is right now. That's where Republicans took it in 2017 with the so-called Trump tax cuts to go from 21%, that's what Biden is saying, to 28%. Now, that's still below where it was during the Obama era. That was 35 percentage points. So they still would have get massive windfall for the biggest corporations, also for the richest people. But of course, Republicans are saying, nope, no way, can't raise them any way, shape, or form from 21%. And they are joined in that criticism. You might not be surprised to hear by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the Business Roundtable. And their position is really all the more absurd because they also wrote in a bunch of new tax breaks in those Trump tax cuts. That mean most big corporations don't even pay the 21%. 55 profitable corporations just last year paid zero taxes. Many of them, like Nike, got money back from the government. One study from 2018 noted that the bulk of profitable major corporations, at least the ones where data was available, paid an effective tax rate of 11.3% under the Trump tax cuts. Also worth noting here, 72% of the benefits from those tax cuts went to the top 20% of taxpayers. But here you are. They're not even paying the 21%. And Republicans say under no circumstances should it go higher than that. So what they're really saying is they would rather vote against fixing any bridges, cleaning any water, shoring up any levee, keeping any dams from collapsing, giving rural areas broadband, or rehabbing any school buildings. Just because huge corporations and the super rich who made over a trillion dollars in new wealth last year might have to pay more money. It's amazing, really. The debate on infrastructure really is between fix some of the bridges or just let all of them fall. Unbelievably ghoulish position from the Republican Party, no doubt there. And really, we have to look one level deeper here because Republicans are being a little bit coy here. They've been making clear since the Obama era the real quid pro quo they're looking for when it comes to making deals as it concerns infrastructure. And it goes, again, to this issue of billionaires. It's not really that the price tag is too large overall. In fact, many leading Republicans always say, well, you don't start with the price tag. You start with what you need to do. The real issue is how it gets paid for. At the end of last year, this is all revealed, for uh, for example, I should say, when President Trump tried to propose his last second $1 trillion infrastructure package, most Republicans rejected it. It's worth noting, they were having trouble passing even a $287 billion highway funding bill at the same time. But the big sticking point they had with the Trump issue was who pays. And Republicans said then, they also said this several times under the Obama administration when they were negotiating over potential infrastructure, that they only really wanted to support infrastructure bills that pay for themselves through user fees, i.e. tolls and so on. 
Now, usually the way to address infrastructure is that governments borrow the money, they contract out the work, then they pay back the loans over time, almost certainly with taxes, and then the government operates whatever the thing may be as a public service. Republicans, however, want to move towards privatizing more public goods. They want to predicate any federal funding on the idea that it's going to be paid for by anything other than taxes. That means the government either has to jack up the fees for the public services, you know, more fees for water uh, on your average monthly bill, tolls on roads or whatever. That obviously is not very popular. So if these things are being operated as public goods, not necessarily the way to go. But what's most likely to happen in that scenario And what Republicans really want is that governments will then seek to spend less public money and seek more private investment. But the only way that that's going to happen is by promising some future ownership and revenues from whatever this user fee may be, which means that you still ultimately get price gouged, but the politicians just don't have to take the responsibility for it. Some nameless, faceless corporation will. At the end of the day, what it really means is that more of your bridges, your roads, and your dams are controlled and owned by huge Wall Street investors and other big companies. And goes without saying, it's the reverse side of billionaires getting paid. It's a form of regressive taxation. If everyone spends $600 a year on tolls, for instance, that's way tougher for someone making $30,000 a year than making $1 million. Now might be a good time to note, by the way, that the top 10 donations to the Republican Senate Leadership Fund, their big super PAC in the last election cycle, came from two hedge fund billionaires, a casino magnet, his wife, and a transportation company CEO who just happens to be an heir to the Mellon banking fortune. Already, the Republican blowback is working. Senator Joe Manchin, Democrat of West Virginia, who claimed he would vote for a bill with zero Republican support, is already calling for a 25% tax rate to try to lure in some of his Republican colleagues. And undoubtedly, Republicans are waiting in the wings to spring as many privatization-related provisions as they can into the process in order to get the most for their corporate donors as possible. I mean, it really is amazing to think that the issue of whether there is poison in the water, whether bridges collapse, whether schools have heat, really could come down to whether or not billionaires and huge corporations have to pay a cent more in taxes. I mean, it's bad enough that one party only wants to make them pay just enough taxes to fix some of the stuff. But what a terrible statement about the so-called state of democracy in the United States of America that the other party would rather let the country crumble underneath our feet than raise taxes on the rich a dime. In fact, they'll only do it if working class people bear the biggest burden. Capitalist democracy in action. At least 11 were killed in a northwestern town in Myanmar. As protests continue to rage in that country in the wake of a military coup earlier this year, in early February, in fact. Al Jazeera reports that, quote, six truckloads of troops were deployed to quell a huge protest in the town of Taiz on Wednesday. When the protesters fought back with guns, knives, and firebombs, five more truckloads of troop reinforcements were brought in, end quote. The Washington Post reported that as of Tuesday, quote, at least 570 people, including more than 40 children, have been killed in two months of unrest. More than 2,720 politicians, activists, and civil society figures have been detained by authorities. At least 25 journalists are in detention. Protests have been surging despite the violence with huge swaths of society involved. 
Three days ago, for instance, healthcare workers who are in the midst of a strike against the coup voluntarily left their own homes after the government threatened them with eviction if they didn't end the strike. Workers in the militant garment sector and those unions that have been organizing for years there, they've also been showing solidarity with Amazon workers in Alabama and the movement for Black Lives here in the U.S. are a big part of this uprising and also continue to take to the streets. The military's move here seems to be rooted really purely in a power grab. It's hard to distinguish any real policy differences between the ruling NLD party and the military's powerful junta that has controlled the country since 1962. They seem to be working hand in glove. It seems the generals were just uneasy with the growing influence of the civilian party they shared power with. Well, shared power isn't even really granted some element of power to, uh, really just purely to emerge from Western sanctions. They just didn't like that they seemed to be very popular. Certainly, the NLD was just as much in favor of the country's alliance with China, so there doesn't seem to be any real geopolitical trigger either, it seems. And the U.S. wants to use Myanmar as a chip against China. The stated goal of the relaxation of relations uh, in the first place was to try to, quote-unquote, wean Myanmar away from China. The U.S. has issued some bland statements and taken some meaningless actions designed to look good in the face of global criticism, but is clearly in no hurry to leave the economic field and certainly have China be almost certainly the main beneficiary there. So they are more or less doing nothing. Now, of course, sanctions would really only hurt average people. I mean, the junta in Myanmar was sanctioned for decades and only average everyday people suffered. The military junta and their businesses did very well. So it's important for people to think about that as they clamor for U.S. action. There really are no effective or humanitarian tools that imperialism can use here. It's all intervention. And it all has a negative impact, which we've already seen with the history of sanctions in Myanmar. The real hope has to be in the streets. And the protest movement seems set to continue and now even fighting back at a higher level. Clearly, the opposition to the coup here is very deep. And whether the generals can hold on, I have to say, looks unclear. The Biden administration announced today that they were offering $5 billion in competitive grants for states and localities that change zoning laws to promote affordable housing something Biden called an all-carrot-no-stick approach in a press conference to a long-standing issue in the housing market. Now, just off the bat here, a similar program in the Obama administration didn't go anywhere, so it's unclear whether or not this program will really take off. But there's a deeper issue here, and one that often lurks in housing policy. That's that the so-called solution can just as easily promote gentrification as affordable housing. Now, the basic thrust of the issue is to change zoning laws to allow more dense housing developments, often apartments, to be built in areas that are now mainly single-family homes with yards and so on and so forth. And many people point out correctly that these zoning restrictions were often developed to keep out lower income and non-white people from certain neighborhoods, particularly in the suburbs. The flip side of that coin, though, is because of white flight, some of these neighborhoods inside of cities have also become majority working class people of color. So on the one hand, changing zoning rules can assist, for instance, building low-income housing somewhere where it isn't wanted out in some affluent suburb, but certainly where it's needed. But on the other hand, this process also can result in the popping up of all sorts of luxury apartment and condo buildings designed to transform neighborhoods by getting rid of poor people. You often hear before major gentrification, well, we got to change the zoning. We got to do up zoning. We got to have more density. It's the biggest Achilles heel in essentially all Democratic Party approaches to affordable housing, which is to just throw money at the problem but not address the structure of how the money is doled out or how the housing market is structured. 
Companies build housing to make money. People invest in said housing to make money, which clearly means that most housing investment will cluster towards people with stable, disproportionately larger incomes. No matter how much money you throw at the problem, if the way you spend the money, and every state and locality does it this way, is public-private partnerships, it means that the projects only work with the maximum amount of market rate renters and the minimum amount of low-income renters who oftentimes use forms of government housing aid. It's the only way to spark the private sector into doing it. And this means that displacement, gentrification, and many people moving into equally as bad, if not worse, conditions somewhere else once displaced oftentimes ends up being the result of these zoning decisions and this big flood of money into the idea of doing public-private housing partnerships to build mixed-income housing, which is what every housing authority and housing development corporation in the country says is their goal. So whether it's zoning or funding, the primary issue is that the right to housing is not compatible with the profit motive. It's just not addressed in any of the policies. There are more homeless people than empty homes. The only way to address the issue of making sure everyone has a roof over their head is for the government to provide housing for people, particularly low-income people. But that public housing is now massively demonized and, of course, never promoted by even so-called progressive politicians nine times out of ten. And for instance, there's something like a $70 billion backlog in public housing repairs right now. Biden is only proposing to spend $40 billion over 10 years. So you get a sense of the priority public housing is being put there. So ultimately, making sure people have a roof over their heads seems certain to continue to be a challenge here in the United States, the richest country in the history of countries. Just another area where it seems that nothing fundamentally will change. And that's going to do it for us here today on The Punch-Out for 8-2021. Tonight, Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, you can join myself and Rania Kalik on the freedom side. We're going to be talking about the Derek Chauvin trial, also the crisis on the border. We've got Phil Agnew. We've got Sierra Taylor. We've got Seema Hernandez, 8 p.m. Eastern Time at BT Newsroom across all your social media platforms. We'll also be on our YouTube page as well. See you then. We'll be back with you tomorrow with The Punch-Out, 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time here. Breakthrough News.